uh, and the series is entitled The Movement. And uh, we'll spend the next few weeks, really the entire month of March, will be on The Movement. And when I was looking at this series, I, I, we put it here in this window strategically to carry us into the Easter season. Because uh, one of the questions I ask myself, and I think pastors ask themselves, is what does our church look like? And does our church reflect what Jesus wanted the church to look like? When Jesus started the church, when he started this whole thing off, and he envisioned the church someday, is this what he envisioned? Is this what he had in mind? Is this what he pictured? Because we all have expectations, right? And we expect what our marriage is going to look like. We expect what our career is going to look like. And we have these expectations that are built in. And sometimes our expectations don't, or the reality doesn't live up to the expectations. Does that make sense? And so as I think about the church, not just our church, but the church with a capital C, the church in general, the worldwide church, do we reflect accurately what Jesus intended for us to be? And so as I was looking at this and thinking about it and praying about it, um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about that question. And what is the church and who is it for and why do we function? Why do we do what we do? And is this what God intended for us to be? And today, we're going to talk a little bit. We in order to know where we're going, we have to know a little bit about where we've been. So we're going to talk a little bit about where the church has been. But let me start with a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 16. Virtually, let me see, virtually all the Scripture we're going to share today is from Matthew. So you can keep your thumb in Matthew if you like. But Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus has his disciples with him. And he's been traveling, they've been preaching. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. He says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And this is a really important question, not just for the disciples, not just for his close intimate followers, but even today, it's an important question for us to ask ourselves and for us to answer. When we hear this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? We have to ask ourselves, who does the world around us say that Jesus is? Because we hear lots of things in the world, right? He was a good teacher. He was a moral man. He was, he was a rabbi. We hear all kinds of descriptions about who Jesus is, but at the end of the day, none of that stuff matters. At the end of the day, the question that really matters is the question that Jesus goes on to ask in just a moment. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 14, it says, and they said, and they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, if you think about the setting, it was Caesarea Philippi. And in Philippi, there was um, this was a center for pagan worship. And so there were all kinds of idol worship. There, this was the center for worship for Baal, who was a, a very prominent false god of that time. Uh, it went on to become a center for worship of, um, of the emperor of Rome. They, they set up temples for him. And so there were many false gods worshipped in Philippi. So it was a backdrop that people understood. Hey, there are lots of options when it comes to worship. And so when, when the disciples answered, they said, well, you know what? Tradition says it's going to be a, one of the prophets, you know, Elijah maybe, Jeremiah. And this is who people say that you are. You're one of these people reincarnated. And then Jesus pins them down and says, ask them the really poignant, important question. But who do you say that I am? And that's what this comes down to today in many ways. It's not what the world says about who Jesus is. It's not what your parents said about who Jesus is. It's not what your spouse or your family says about who Jesus is. It's who do you say Jesus is? And not just with your mouth. It's easy to say, well, Jesus is Lord, right? 
I mean, we see it everywhere. I saw a, a UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship. I see a UFC fight one time, and this guy is walking into the ring, and he's carrying, literally carrying a cross, and the camera gets right in his face, and he's saying, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Lord, and then he goes on to get pummeled. He just gets destroyed in this fight. And I was like, I really wish he hadn't been saying that, because, you know, oh, come on, come on. But it was easy. He said that with his words. He was even carrying a gigantic cross. But it's easy to go through the motions. It's easy to say the right thing. But it's another thing to live it out. So maybe the question shouldn't be, who do you say Jesus is? But what do your actions say about the lordship of Jesus in your life? Because a lot of us, we believe in Jesus when it comes to our words. But practically, functionally, we are atheists. Because if we believe Jesus was who he said he is then we would live our lives differently. So he asked them, who do you say that I am? And this is their response in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now again, he says you are the Christ, and Christ means the Messiah. So what he's declaring is, you are the one we've been waiting on. You are the one the Jewish people have been anticipating for generations, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You are that guy. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, the word Peter there, it means rock. So at this moment, Jesus is changing his name. He's saying, you're not going to be known as, as Simon Barjona anymore. You're not going to be known as this guy. Now I'm changing your name to Peter, and it means the rock. And he said, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give the keys of the kingdom in heaven, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Don't you love that? <laughs> Jesus finishes off and goes, hey, you know what? You're exactly right. I am the Messiah. I am the one you've been waiting on. Uh, hey, I'm going to give you power and authority, but don't you tell anybody, Right? I love that. You remember when you were a kid and somebody would say, hey, I know somebody who likes you. Well, who is it? Well, I'm going to tell you, but you can't tell anybody. You know what that means. I'm telling everybody. Like, Jenny likes me? Hey, everybody, Jenny likes me. Right? You couldn't keep the secret to yourself. You wanted people to know. And this is what Jesus says. He says, hey, don't tell anybody. And I think one of the reasons, there's, there's a lot of question behind why Jesus would heal somebody and say, now don't tell anybody that I healed you. And I think one of the reasons Jesus did this was because he knew people's propensity to chase after works and signs rather than the heart of Christ. And I think, and this is just my opinion, I think at times he wanted to tap the brakes on people just seeking after him because, uh, because of the signs and wonders. I think the signs and wonders were part of it, but I think signs and wonders follow when you pursue the heart of Christ. Does that make sense? So sometimes we get so focused on, I need a miracle in my life, that we fail to pursue the miracle giver in our lives. Is that, are you following me this morning? Okay. And I think this is one of, the, one of the motivations for Jesus to say, hey, now don't tell anybody. Because he didn't want them to just go out and say, hey, everybody, guess what? Because he would have a huge following, but they would be following him for the wrong reasons. Their hearts would not have been captured by him as much as their imaginations or their hands or their, their, what they desired. And so Jesus kind of taps the brakes on that. But it's interesting, when you look back up here, this, this passage when he says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, it's one of the most hotly debated passages of scripture in 
human history. And one of the reasons is because the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, has taken this verse and said, see, Jesus said Peter was the first pope. So that's how this whole thing starts. And if you are here and you have a Catholic background, I'm not here today to bash the the Catholic Church, okay? Um, That's not what this is about. But we have to understand our history and where we come from. And this passage of Scripture is really important for us to look at. So when we look at that and we say, okay, what Jesus was saying was he was going to build his church on the rock or the stone who is Peter, it is really not, uh, it's really not an accurate description of what is going on here. Because what Jesus is really trying to say is the confession you just made about who I am is the cornerstone for this whole thing. It's what this whole foundation is going to be laid on. And when you look at this, if you look in in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus actually identifies himself as the cornerstone. So he he, he wasn't contradicting an earlier statement. He wasn't saying, Peter, I'm going to build my church on you, and then coming back later and going, you know what, no, I changed my mind. I'm going to build the church on me. That's not what he was saying at all. Because if you understand construction, especially construction for thousands of years, a foundation of a building was laid by taking a a perfect stone in height and width and size, and they would lay that as the cornerstone. And then every other stone for that foundation was measured off of that first stone as a reference. So they would say, okay, um, I can place this stone, but really I only know where this goes because of where the reference point is. And so for our lives, Jesus is the cornerstone because he is the reference point for our lives. Because guess what? I cannot be your reference point. If you say, I'm going to base my life on the spirituality of Mel Massingale, you are in trouble, okay? You can't do that. You can't base your cornerstone off of your parents, off of your grandparents' faith, on anybody else. You have to say, I'm going to use my reference point as Jesus Christ. I'm going to lay the foundation of my life based on who Jesus Christ is. Does that make sense? And that's what we have to do. And so Jesus wasn't saying, Peter, you are going to be the reference point. You're going to be the cornerstone. He was saying, your confession of me as Messiah is accurate. And based on that confession of me as Messiah, I'm going to be the cornerstone for this thing. The church, the historic church is going to be built off of me. It's going to be based off of me as a cornerstone. Because if there's any other reference point than me, the foundation is going to be faulty. And it's going to fall apart. See, one of the words that we see here, it's the first time this word was used in in Scripture. And it says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And this word is the first time we see this in Scripture, and Jesus uses it. And the word there is a word in the Greek, it's ecclesia. And so when we look at this, um, it's really not an accurate portrayal of what Jesus was trying to portray here. It's really not totally... It's not really a good representation of what Jesus was trying to get across. Because the word ecclesia doesn't really mean church. See, ecclesia in the Greek, it's a gathering of people united by a common identity and purpose. And so you go, well, that sounds like a church. Well, just wait. Because an ecclesia in in Greco-Roman times could be any kind of gathering. It didn't have to be spiritual. It could be a group of people that were united in identity and purpose for political purposes or, or rally around some sort of a socioeconomic need or, hey, we're going to help people. We're going to do something. We're going to gather together. We're going to meet. We're going to talk about something, and then we're going to go do something about it. Does that make sense? Yes. And so that's really what Ecclesia was supposed to be. If you look at the early church, just I'm going to just let you know, this is not going to be a deep history lesson of the church, okay? This is not Old Testament 101 or anything like that. But um, when we look at the early church, after Jesus died, 
and was, res- was resurrected. If you look from an outsider's perspective of what Christianity is, it looks a little crazy. Now, I'm not saying Christianity is crazy, but if you were standing on the outside looking in, you might think those people are nuts. And let's just walk through this. We serve a God who speaks to people through burning shrubbery, right? It's not normal, okay? Um, the centerpiece of our faith is a carpenter who taught for about three years. He was betrayed and murdered publicly, embarrassed and scorned. And then his followers claimed that he rose from the dead, Right? You look at that from the outside and you go, I don't know. But then you look historically at what God has done. And you, when you look at the dozens of messianic movements that happened that are now footnotes in history that we don't even know about, that we don't even care about. People who said, hey, I'm the Messiah. And they had a group of followers. And then that was squashed and put down and we never heard anything else from it. And then we look at Jesus and his life and his legacy, that this was a guy that if he wasn't who he claimed to be, none of this stuff would have happened because he he outlived the Roman Empire. 2,000 years later, we are still worshiping Jesus Christ. One-third of the earth's population at the center of their faith is Jesus Christ. At virtually every country on the globe, there are people that are worshiping Jesus today. We look at the story of what Jesus did and how he's doing it. We have to understand that it is not institutional. It is a movement. That There's something more to this thing than, hey, let's get together and sing some songs and hear a guy talk to us for a while. There's something intrinsically more valuable to it than just that. But in AD 33, Constantine, he was um, about to become the emperor of Rome, he legalized Christianity. And really what he did was he, he created a freedom of religion in the Roman Empire. And at that time, Christianity and Judaism, for that matter, were at odds with Roman Empire because Romans, they outlawed any religion that didn't allow Caesar to be, or the emperor to be, the supreme ruler. So you could have a god as long as your god was subservient to Caesar. And so when Constantine in AD 33 made this shift, it was huge. The the church had been going through years of oppression, years of uh, abuse. There were martyrs that, that were lined in the cities, people, I mean, atrocious, unbelievable things were happening to Christians, but Christianity was spreading like wildfire throughout the world. So Constantine comes on the scene. He makes it legal to be a Christian. And then a few years later, he does the unthinkable, and he declares that he himself has become a Christian. Now, this is kind of a crazy thought, because for many people, Christianity was still just a little offshoot of Judaism, that it was some sort of weird sect, and it would go away someday. But when Constantine declared himself as Christian, it did something incredible. It it made being a Christian cool or in vogue. And all of a sudden, people began to turn to Christianity because Constantine, the emperor, was a Christian. 
And if they wanted to do anything politically, if they wanted to advance their agenda, then what they needed to do is become a Christian just like the emperor. And so what they saw was this seismic shift in the way church was done. Because before Constantine had made this declaration, church was largely done in people's homes. They would get together for worship. They would get together and share the word. They would encourage each other. They would pray for each other. They would bless each other. And they would go about their business. There weren't thousand-seat auditoriums or 5,000-seat auditoriums or 20,000-seat auditoriums. None of that happened because it wasn't about a corporate setting. It was about a movement of people that were joined together for a common purpose. So when Constantine came on the scene, it, it, it shifted the way worship was done. You began having people that, um, how can I say this nicely? Maybe um, a little bit of a higher class kind of individual is starting to come into the church. And, and maybe their motivation wasn't always right because what they began to do was bring in some of the uh, imperial protocols that they often saw when it came to the empire, when it came to um, Constantine. And they began to institute some of those things into worship. And so they saw things for the first time um, like incense being burned, ornate clothing, processionals, choirs, all this kind of crazy pageantry started coming into the worship setting. And, and those things aren't, aren't always bad, but what began to happen is the, the normal person in the church was marginalized where they were relegated to a role where they were just spectators. They would attend a worship service and they were just watching what was going on. And they weren't really part of it anymore. And we see it advance even further. Um, there was a common practice in, in ancient Christianity where um, if... On, on the anniversary of a martyr's death, if just to make it easier, if we knew of somebody in our congregation, in our group, that was martyred for the cause of Jesus, on the anniversary of their death, we would go to the place that they were killed or the place where they were buried, and that, that we would take a moment, we would receive communion together, and we would honor their sacrifice, and we would glorify God through that. So this was a practice in ancient Christianity. But what they did when Constantine came to power was they advanced that just a little bit. And they said, you know what? Let's not just come here for worship. Let's begin to build buildings here. Let's make a big old building. Let's, let's really honor them. And I think their motivation was right. Because what they did is they began to build large places of worship called basilicas. And if they couldn't build the basilica over the burial place or over the place of martyrdom for a saint, what they would do is they would go and retrieve the bones and they would bring the bones and bury them under the altar or under the, the place of worship so that they could have that. And so all of a sudden what you had was what was once a movement became very institutionalized. So it went from being something that was organic, that was alive, to being something that people felt on the outside of. They felt like they weren't connected to it anymore. And to further that just a little bit, the word church is such a common part of our vocabulary and language today. But as I said, the word church wasn't even the way it was supposed to be translated when Jesus quoted, said this. The word church actually comes from a, a German word, and it's kirch, and it means house of the Lord. And you think, well, that's okay, right? But the word kirch is German, it's not Greek. And so when we look at the Bible, the Bible is largely translated from the Greek. And when we look at this, the word kirch is substituted in to Scripture where the word ecclesia should be. So when we look at the word church versus ecclesia, church is a place of worship. So it's a building, it's a location, it's someplace we can go. And ecclesia is a gathering of people. In fact, 
Scripture refers to Jews as ecclesia, even though they've been scattered throughout the world. So even though they're not physically together, they're still part of a gathering that unites them into a common motion, into a common movement. And so when we look at these two things, we look at the word church and look at the word ecclesia, they're two radically different things. And I'll tell you this, and I think I've been here long enough for you to know this, I'm not interested in us just having church. I want us to be a movement of people that are impacting our community and impacting our world because churches don't change the world. Churches that come together just to meet and just to, just to gather, just to check off our spiritual punch list, we are not changing anyone when we do that. But when we say we're going to be a movement of people who are intentionally taking the gospel throughout the world, that's where lives are transformed and changed. You know what's interesting? The gospel is actually furthered more when the church was in persecution than it was whenever it became this norm in society. Now, I know that gets you excited. But I think for some of us, there's going to have to be a level of discomfort in our walk with Christ before we're going to be motivated to take our faith outside. The reason why the church is flourishing in China is persecution. The reason why we're seeing thousands and thousands and thousands of Arabs every day in the Middle East being saved is because of persecution. Because they're getting saved because they want it really bad. They want something different than what they've seen before. And I think one of the reasons the church isn't growing and flourishing in the United States is because we are so comfortable with what we have that it ceased to be a movement a long time ago and it's just become something we do. It's not the center of our existence. It's just one of the spokes on the wheel. So we have to be very careful that we don't take this thing and neuter it and take away its power and turn it into something it's not. This is what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is Peter talking. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, Peter is trying to help them understand their identity in Christ. That they're not just converts, they're not just followers. They are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. What he's doing is he's comparing and contrasting. In Judaism, they were known as the people of God. And in order, in early church, for you to be converted to become a follower of God, you had to go through the Jewish rituals. And all of a sudden, that's being wiped away. And Peter says here, he says, you don't have to worry about all the steps. You are a royal priesthood because you are bought with a price. And if you remember last week, Pastor Todd talked about some of the ownership and some of the buying back. And we looked at that during our redemptive love series. What we see here says, you're a holy nation, a people for his own possession. God looks at us as his prized possession. We are his own. He has purchased us. But the part I want us to see is it says, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out. If you look at the word ecclesia, if you really break it down, it can also have another meaning. And it can also mean to call out. If you look at the literal word and it's, it's attached together in this conjunction, it means to call out. So God is not just calling us to be a part of a movement, but he's calling us out. 
He's calling us to do something. He's calling us to, to, to leave our place of comfort, to go to someplace where maybe not very comfortable, and do something for him. See, in the context of the scripture, it says, called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. And one of the things we're going to look at in a couple of weeks is that God is not just calling us to be good, but he's calling us to push back against the darkness in our world. And you might look and go, well, hey, we're in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Things are good, right? And this is a great community. I love my town. Hey, we've got a great city. But I will tell you, there's darkness presence in our, in our city. And some of you would say, well, you know, it's just the university, <laughs> right? Oh, they party, they drink, IU Patties is coming up, and that's part of it. But you know what? Three blocks from my house last week, there was a man that killed his mom, broke into her house and murdered her. Now, he's psychologically not all there. He's haven't had some problems, but you can't tell me that that's not darkness, Every day there's people in our town and on our city who are going hungry. There are kids who don't have enough to eat every day. You can't tell me that that's not darkness. Every day there are people that are looking for jobs that don't have enough. There are marriages that are breaking down. There are are families in conflict. You can't tell me that there's not darkness in our community. It's not just our job to be light and to be nice and to be good, but it is our job to push back against the darkness. The, the enemy of our souls has, has taken ground that he should not have taken, and it is our responsibility. If we're going to be an ecclesia, if we're going to be a movement and not just a church, it's going to be our responsibility to push back against that and take back ground that the enemy has taken against us. Amen. There's got to be an element of aggression when it comes to this, or it will not work and it will not succeed. We are called out, not just of our sin, but we're called out in order to fight against the darkness in our world. Matthew 28, Jesus is at the end of his ministry. He's about to ascend into heaven. This is a verse I've shared with you multiple times. Matthew 28, 18 says this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now what he said is, everything at God's disposal is is at my disposal. He said, every bit of power and authority that God has, he has given to me, right? So that's, He's establishing himself so we can understand where we're at. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now I want to stop there because he's saying, I have all authority. And so because I've got all authority, therefore I'm sending you with all authority. Not just to go be good and be nice and to greet the people in your workplace. I'm going, I'm sending you to make a difference. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the ages. See, one of the problems with churches in the United States is that we, we have taken the move out of movement. We want to be a movement, but we want people to move toward us. Just come do what we're doing. Hey, just come to church. Hey, hey, just you get here. And I want you to invite people to church. I want you to invite your friends and neighbors. I want you to. But if that is all we're doing, we're not doing enough because we have to take the church to people. We, we have to take the love of Christ to them where they're at, no matter where they are. You know, I've said this before. We're doing a bunch of mission trips this summer. But for some of you, a first step is not going to be to go around the world. It's going to be to go across the street and talk to your neighbor and show them the love of Christ. 
we have to put the move back into movement. Jesus didn't say, hey, you guys wait right here and a bunch of sinners are gonna show up and they're gonna ask how they can get saved. He said, go into all the world. Jesus was asking for a big thing. He didn't say, go to every part of this city. He said, go into the whole world to share the gospel, make disciples, teach them everything that I've taught you. He was asking a big thing. But the great news is, he didn't just send us out. The last part of that scripture says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This harkens back to Isaiah chapter eight. There was a prophecy about Jesus, the coming Messiah. And it said he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And it's repeated again in Matthew chapter one, that that prophecy from Isaiah eight is quoted. It says he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus at the end of his life, I think this is really important as he ascends into heaven and he's giving these instructions to his disciples. He says to them, Go, I've I've got all authority. I'm sending you out in all authority. But then he says, but I'm gonna be with you even to the end of the age. He's he's repeating that very first statement that was made about him and Isaiah. Hey, you're not gonna be alone in this thing. I'm going with you. I'm empowering you to do what I'm asking you to do. Is it a big deal? Absolutely. But I'm gonna be with you. You're not in this thing alone. The way we change Indiana and Indiana County and Southwest Pennsylvania is not through us just having good services. It's not through us just having a good time when we get together. It's through us mobilizing ourselves as a revolutionary group of people who are going out to change the world. That is what God is calling us to do. I don't want us to have just another religious get together. We don't need that. There are plenty of those in the world. What we need and what the world needs is a group of people who are coming together with a common purpose and a common identity to do something that God has called us to do. God is calling us to be a movement of people, not just a church. That's my challenge to you today. Are you willing to do it? Because it doesn't start with me. It starts with every person in this room saying, I want that for my life. Because when that begins to happen, corporately, we will change the world. But do you want that? It has to start with you. So let's pray together. God, thank you that you want so much more than just to save us or forgive us or redeem us. Lord, you want us to be vessels that can change the world. So Lord, I pray today we would have a bold vision for ourselves, for our community. Help us to see everything you've got for us and then give us the boldness and the authority to tackle it and to see it come to pass. God, I pray for vision in this place to begin to rise up in people's hearts, Lord, as we begin to see what could be and what the possibilities are. I pray that you would help us see that we're not just a group of believers in this place. Lord, help us see that that we are a revolution waiting to happen. That God, we're gonna push back against the darkness in our community Lord, maybe even even in our businesses or in our homes, and we're not gonna let the enemy of our souls take any more ground or advance any further than he has. It ends today. So Lord, I pray that you'd bless us, minister in us and through us right now. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I just wanna ask today, if you're here today, maybe you're not a follower of Christ, maybe you don't really have a relationship with Jesus, that is okay. There's no condemnation here. But if you're here and you say, that's me and I want to know Jesus, I wanna have a relationship with him. Maybe you've been to church a hundred times, but you've never really connected with Jesus and become a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's you. 
I just want you to raise up your hand and say, that's me, pray for me. I want to know Jesus. I really want to know him. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You can put your hands down. Who else? Say, that's me. Pray for me, Mel. Thank you over here on my right. Appreciate it, sir. Thank you, ma'am, over here on my right. Who else? Saw you up in the balcony. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Who else? See, that's me. I want to know Jesus today. I want to have a relationship with him. I just, I don't, I don't want religion. I want Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you say, Mel, I'm a Christian. I know I'm going to heaven. Man, I really struggle with that whole thing you're talking about with religion versus relationship, with just attending church and being a movement. I know I'm going to heaven. I know I've got a relationship, but I want to, I really want to walk in that that you're talking about today. I want to be part of the ecclesia and not just part of a church. If that's you, would you just put your hand up and let me pray for you today? Thank you. Thank you. All over the room. Let me pray for you right now. Lord, thank you so much for those that raised their hands today. Thank you for those that declare they want to know you and have a relationship with you. I pray that right now you would solidify that in their spirits, that, Father, you would speak into them, that you would challenge them, and that, Lord, their lives would be changed today because of the power at work in them. That, Lord, you are able to overcome the world. Lord, you said that, that you have overcome the world and you're with us. Lord, I pray that you would help them see that, that they can overcome everything they come against, God. Lord, I pray that their lives would be changed from this day forward when they say, I want to know Jesus. I want to have a relationship with him. Let them grow and flourish in their walk with you. Let them know you like never before. I pray that you surround them with godly influences who are going to speak life into them and challenge them and let them get plugged into a church, whether it's this church or another church. God, let them find a place to get plugged in and get planted and rooted so they can grow in their faith. So God, minister and then bless them. I pray that for those that raised their hands and said, I'm a Christian, but I want to know God more. I want to walk in that ecclesia that you're talking about, God. I pray that today their faith would come to life like never before, God. I pray that they would know you in ways that would blow them away, God. I pray that you give them a hunger and thirst to know you more than ever before. And God, I pray that we wouldn't be satisfied with just showing up to church and just attending a service. But God, let us be set on fire for you, Lord. Let us come to life in you. And God, I pray that, Lord, it would be revolutionary for our community. God, I pray that the faith that we display, <laughs> let it be viral, Father. Let it spread to all parts of our community. Lord, not just because of services, but because of the people that are growing in their faith here at this church. So Lord, have your way among us. Speak through us. Let us be the people and the church that you dreamed of when you said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Have your way with us, God. Speak through us. Let us be your mouthpiece for this world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.